You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers to hear their stories what inspires their creations? What decisions changed their careers? What relationships influenced their work? Good stories teach us about people. Great ones alter the way we see ourselves. For many, the new podcast S-Town has done just that. The seven-episode series from the folks who brought us Serial and This American Life provides a window into the world of an eccentric Alabama horologist named John B. McLemore. Released on March 28th, it reached critical acclaim almost instantly, garnering 16 million downloads in the first seven days. But to focus on its commercial success would be missing the point. S-Town isn't about celebrity, viral tweets, or even the alleged Alabama murder that led host and producer Brian Reed to McLemore in the first place. The front door of the house opens and a man comes bounding out of it. John. I'll let people see it. How are you? I found it. Nice to meet you. There's no nice to meet you back, no how you doing, no handshake. John just takes off around the side of the house with a pack of dogs following him. Come on, Pipsqueak. It's about a brilliant, cynical man whose very existence challenges modern notions of masculinity, homophobia, and mental illness. A man who had a story to tell, just not the one he thought. As the world continues to devour S-Town, I sat down with Brian Reed to talk about the critical acclaim the series has received. I don't know, I'm getting a taste of it, and I'm, uh, and I'm enjoying it, and I'm grateful that people like it. It doesn't feel overwhelming, you know, uh, But do you also feel it's an enormous opportunity for you to channel this energy into you, big production deal, and get things going, and start making some more s- content? Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I should be thinking that way. I mean, I'm back in my day job right now. I work at This American Life, and I'm just making stories now. You work with Ira? Yeah, yeah like the day after this came out, Ira was like, uh, are you back at work tomorrow? <laughs> like, basically, I've been gone for a year on hiatus, and they wanted and me back. Said, and you should have said, yeah. who are you? I knew you where. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, Wait, Ira who? But, but when you did this, you obviously didn't predict the success no, I thought program. it was going to be, if anything, like a cultish thing. And I started working on this even before Serial was out, you know, so the, like, or invented. They were just started th- starting Serial. Uh, so tell us then, um, 
what is S Town? <laughs> and I mean, what is it for a listener in, in an encapsulated kind of a, uh, if, there, if there was the equivalent of TV guide, like radio guide, mm-hmm. what would you say in a pithy paragraph? It's really hard. We struggled with this because right. there's certain things you don't want to tell about the story. You want people to learn them in the story. So that's been challenging because it's a story that shifts a, a number of times throughout it. Things happen that change that kind of the story shifts underneath it happened underneath my feet in right. real life as I was reporting it, but then also as it was in the story. You, that's yeah. what we've tried to to reflect in the story as well. But it's about a man named John B. McLemore who contacted me. Um, he contacted you. He wrote our show, and I saw his email and responded. He says in his first email, "I'm a longtime listener who recently started Good. listening again," which is sometimes crazy to me that this whole seven part thing is just about a listener. You know, like of which we have millions, which is nuts. But um, yeah, he'd been hearing the show. And um, he heard a couple in particular stories we'd done. Um, Ira did a story um, investigating a judge and some possible malfeasance that a judge had been um, doing in rural Georgia. He'd heard that story and in a show we did called Getting Away With It, which actually wasn't investigative at all, but I think the title caught his attention. And, uh, and he wanted us to come down and investigate some wrongdoing that he said was going on in his small town in Alabama. So he reaches out to you. He talks to you first. He wrote our general account. I want to alert your producers to some stuff that's going on in my what town. Happens then? And the and the subject line was John B. McLemore lives in Shittown, Alabama. That was his title. <laughs> there was a liveliness to it. There was He had you with that subject yeah, line. Yeah, and there was a liveliness to it. Even the even like the capitalization was erratic in a way that caught my attention in the email. And then, you know, he said, I would hope that you guys could come down here and investigate some of the terrible things that are going on in this shit town, Woodstock, Alabama, in Bibb County, Alabama. And he mentioned um Two incidents, one of which was this murder that he said had taken place um, that a local kind of rich kid had allegedly beaten someone to death and then was out bragging about it, had not gone to jail, had gotten away with it. And so that's what he was telling us about. But it was also like, just generally, you need to check this place out. It's so fucking terrible. Like, that was like the, the general vibe with a couple examples. But, but I would yeah. imagine that beyond the kind of Faulkner-esque tableau of the area, you know what I mean, or this kind of southern uh, uh, idol and uh, the, the crazy characters and the, and, the, and the implication of some crime or some evil or what have you, you I would imagine that, that you must get variations of that pitch to you all the time. We do, yeah. This and what one... made you, what, what was it about this one that made you go, okay, let's go down, so the next thing is you go down there, correct? Well, I talked to him for a while on the okay, phone. Okay. It took a year for me to get on the phone with him because it was not right. a priority for right, me. Right, right. Like I was working on other stuff that seemed more real. You know, and then eventually we got on the phone because he sent me like a news report about some actual police corruption that had actually happened, which reminded me that I should check in with this guy. So you call him and what happens? I mean, we talk about the alleged murder, but then also he just starts talking about his life in general. He, you know, he's 48 at the time we started talking, I think, around there, late 40s. Um, And he'd lived there his entire life in this town of 1,500 people or less. He'd never left. He desperately hated it. He wanted to leave, but wouldn't leave. He lived there alone in the house he'd grown up in that had been there for for centuries, you know, a century and a half, you know, with his mother who had dementia, who he took care of, and, you know, a large number of dogs fluctuating between 13 and 21 dogs, and he yeah. built a giant hedge maze in his backyard. I, remember, yeah. I mean, he was he – was, it was just one it of those exotic. conversations where, yeah, I was getting the information about the murder, the alleged murder, but also he seemed to be going through something in talking to me. It wasn't even just details, like all those details are interesting, but he – was wrestling with the fact that he'd never left this place he despised. And that caught my attention. And, yeah, that and was, I, you was know, a cool idea. Yeah, and I was like, maybe there's a murder, 
if there's a murder, this guy is part of it. This is what makes the story special. You know, it was always going to be he was a big part of it from the get-go. I mean, that's interesting to me that when you, th- you you talk to this guy on the phone, he's a good talker and he's compelling and his voice is so kind of theatrical. Yeah. And I know you're telling yourself this, this has some possibilities. We are a radio show. Absolutely. No, I mean, you need – I mean, in order for a radio story to work, yeah. you need a good talker. Got to sound right. Yeah. Like that's the a phrase that is said many times in our office every day of This American Life. Is he a good talker? And a story yeah. can live or die on that. Right. A story that in a pitch on a piece of paper – um, strong. could have all the beats of an interesting story and surprise. We'll call and do a pre-interview with someone and it just doesn't lit. You need a good talker to, you know, great stories happen to those. Who so a year them. goes by between when you first pick this up and you call him. How much time goes by after that from when you first go down there? We talked on the phone for, I think, you know, eight to ten months because I was working on other stuff. Right. And I did try to see if I could find anything about this murder from afar. Basically, I was doing I was getting that. into the court system and stuff. Um, and I couldn't, and it eventually got to the point where, like, I just needed to go down there. But in the course of that, I would be checking in with John, and we invariably had these very long conversations that were about much more than the murder. So we were getting to know each other, you know? I got to know about his obsession with climate change and about this relationship that he had with these, um, you know, this local guy that worked on his property that was interesting to me. Like, there were just elements where it's just like, I want to go what meet this guy. What is his name guy, again? The Tyler guy? Goodson. Right, 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 right. He's the other protagonist. Yeah. Um, and what, what, what was the, 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 the root of his obsession with climate change? What was he because of changes that were happening down there? Or? I don't know for sure. And I didn't talk about I, my sense is that what I've been told, this isn't in the story, is that um, he got a computer only in the last few years of his life or say the last five years. Someone at Town Hall had hooked him up with an old computer before. I mean, he was incredibly intelligent and in touch with the world. Um, but, like, I think he had, like, books shipped to him from the library sure. is how he did it. Yeah. Um, but he then the computer arrives. He, he was given a computer, and I think my sense is that the climate change and energy and peak oil um, fixations and, you know, him t- teaching himself about that, like, he really went down some rabbit holes with the computer. Sure, yeah, and that that's, that's very common. Yeah. But it's interesting. I wonder also how he's so connected to the land, to borrow that cliche, mm-hmm. that he knows sort of to notice changes in that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, he would talk about, like— I'm seeing less butterflies. You know, he would notice things like that. Things are getting browner. We haven't had rain in this long. So, I, yeah, I think that was part he of it. He was too. very connected to his, yeah. his environment. Yeah. So you go down and meet him for the first time and describe that situation. It's just me. That's one of the great things about radio reporting. It's super lean. You don't need like a film crew. You don't need <laughs> right. the golden hour. But you like, go down to record. Do, yeah, but it's just like a little kit that I'm hanging on my neck in a tiny, you know, like a medium-sized microphone. So it's pretty like I'm just in my car, rental car. I mean, it's I pr- it's pretty much as I describe in the story. Like I missed his house, you know, the first time passed. You fly to where? Birmingham. And drive how far? Um, like forty five minutes. Rent a car, forty five minutes to an hour. And forty five minutes to an hour outside yeah. of Birmingham, it gets pretty. I mean, it, it's the kind of the beginning of like rural part of West Alabama. Like they're the they're the first county kind of after you leave Jefferson County, which mm-hmm. has um, Birmingham and uh, Bessemer, which is kind of like the you know the end of the metro area, I'd say, is my understanding of it. Mm-hmm. So you're driving you're driving kind of southwest out of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Bibb County is kind of between Birmingham and Tuscaloosa are these two kind of like things on either cities on either side that are each about 45 minutes outside. He'd give me directions, but he was like, Google Maps doesn't really work. Like you should use latitude and longitude would be more helpful. So I put that into Google the Maps. stars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had, you know, a compass with me. Yeah, missed his house because it's just a little like driveway path through the woods eventually like came back by and went down there like nine i think it was 910 feet into the woods and then you hit this clearing and it is this very old 
house. And, you know, I'd been to Alabama once before, kind of just passing through, and I've been in the South before. And But I was kind of just like, all right, well, maybe this is just like a normal house and like place to live in the South, this land that's like this house in the middle of a clearing, with, you know, that's very old. But I've since, you know, spent a lot of time in Alabama and talked to a lot of people and everyone who, you know, even lifelong residents of Alabama have said, no, that place is not normal. When I first went to John's, I was like, where the hell am I? Like I'm stepping back in time. Well, that, that's what's curious to me is, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't want to say he sounded to me and I only experience him on your show and his voice yeah. on your show. And he sounded to me like he was pretty wound up and pretty intense and he's very colorful in a way that would make me entertained by him alternately and concerned about him alternately. So when you yeah. go down there, you're not nervous? You're not worried for your safety? I wasn't worried for my safety. I was a little, you know, I was aware that I was going somewhere kind of off the grid. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I don't remember being concerned with my safety with John. Right. I, I don't. You, I mean, you'd spoken to him so many times, yeah. you built up a trust with him. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but he certainly was very intense and he was exhausting to be with. You know, both thrilling and could be frustrating and exhausting. Mm-hmm. You know, like his, it wasn't like a normal interview, like what we're doing right now. Like I could not get him to do that. You know, there were a couple of times I tried to sit down and just talk to him. And uh, he was just, he couldn't sit there and talk. What do you attribute that to? I think it's his personality and whether that's, you know, certain mental health issues or as I talk about in the story, there's a question of, question of mercury uh, poisoning. Right. Right. Yeah, I wasn't nervous, but it was like just really trying to get a grasp on like, how, you know. Like, you, you know, you're reporting, you don't just, like, normally let someone talk. That's not reporting. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you have questions and you have a, a focus. And where were those and, questions and what was the focus when you began? Well, with him, it, I mean, like, I definitely was like, you know, we've got to do this murder investigation stuff. So there were certain steps I wanted to take, you know, that were seemed safe but defined with him. But then I was also open to, like, I'm interested in him and his life. I want to talk to him about his life. I'm interested in this, you know, relationship he started to tell me about with Tyler Goodson and some of the locals there. So hopefully I'll get to, like, get inside that a little bit. So that was – those were all kind of, like, through lines in my head, you know, as I'm, as I'm down there. But then he had his own agendas, too. Like he, What do you think his was? Well, he wanted to, like, teach me about climate change. Like, he literally <laughs> – like, the second morning I was there, you know, I called him. I'm like, I'm up. I'm going to drive over there. You know, I was staying, like, 15 or 20 minutes away. And he's like, okay, I'm preparing a lecture for you on climate change. I timed it. It's well, like t- it's t- 25 t- minutes. It'll only take 20, right. 20 minutes. But did you sense he wanted to teach you out of some kind of intellectual vanity? Or was he the Obi-Wan Kenobi of climate change and wanted you to run out and go fight the fight somewhere? What, did he articulate I that I constantly had this feeling with John where in all of my time knowing him and to this day, his mind and his ability to understand particularly science um, was so beyond mine. Like, like what he would talk about climate change, it was I could get like two percent of it, and so I, I constantly have this feeling of like either he is a freaking prophet or completely loony. I have no idea, and it could be either at any point. You still feel that yeah. way? He's either. I still don't know. I mean, and I, I hired a researcher to look into like a lot of his writings on climate change, like to try and figure How that out at one up? point. It's, I mean, it was so complicated. Like, basically, it seems like he's right. He's not like putting factual inaccuracies in these in right. his theories, but he is. The general sense I got after the researcher looked into it was that, um, like he, you know, he's he's choosing things to focus on that serve his thesis, right. you know, that serve his um, negative worldview. So you you start with him down this path of exploring the crime. Yes, and then you find out that none of it is what it was purported to be. The or crime, some of it is, but one some, important some, detail is different. Well, one important detail yeah. is different. And, yeah. and when you discover that, what prevents you from just packing up and leaving and going, "We're done." I discovered it 
after I so I did a visit there in October, but I didn't actually really put it all like come to the conclusion of that until early summer. I still was interested in him. He had other um, pieces of corruption that he was telling me about. I was like, maybe I'll, and I was interested in his relationship with Tyler Goodson. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll look into one of these other things. Um, Because what he was telling me had happened, everyone in town believed it had happened exactly as he told me. He didn't make it up. It was just that, you know, one important detail was different that didn't make it as bad of a crime as he had said it was. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to him like, I'm going to come back down there. You know, there were a couple loose ends I wanted to put to bed with this initial murder investigation um, and then just talk to him, you know, like kind of get inside his and Tyler's relationship a little bit more, um, possibly look at another piece of corruption that, or, you know, wrongdoing that he was telling me about. So that was in like June we were having these conversations. I was working on a big story that was coming out on July 4th and I was like right after July 4th, John, I want to come back down there, you know, and he was all like um, – oh my God, it's going to be the dead of summer. It's going to be so hot and I need to get the house cleaner out here and it's the house is full of fleas and oh my gosh, and I'm going to have to prune the maze. And Goodness gracious. Yeah, and I was like, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. So right after July 4th and then he, he um, I guess we're not talking about this. That's the the tricky, tricky part. But he did yeah. the thing that he does in the story on June 22nd. Right. And so that... Um, do you, do you want to tell it? Do you think? Is, 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 do you want to? Can you tell people to maybe like go listen to the show first before I say this next part? Yeah, we're going to stop here. Here's yeah. where you press pause, pause now, and go listen to S Town, which in total is what six hours or six and change. Yeah, and we mean it. If you haven't listened to S Town and don't want more details about what happens, stop listening to this right now. Go download S Town and come back here in six hours. If you are sticking with us, coming up, Brian Reed reveals why he can never eat calamari again. Hint, it involves pork. Brian started at This American Life as an intern in 2010. He says he can't imagine another place where he would have gotten to make S-Town in large part because of the creative wisdom of his boss, Ira Glass, who I spoke to a couple of years ago. I mean, this show reflects my taste. But also, I have to say, the taste of my coworkers. You know, like, it's not just mine at this point. Like, it's something that we all share. And I happen to be the front man. And that, in that way, it's different than, than it was from the beginning. Like, I am the front man for this thing that we make together. Like, somebody who's in a band that's been playing for a long time. To hear more of my conversation with Ira Glass, take a listen at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback 
with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When Brian Reed replied to an email sent to This American Life from John B. McLemore, he intended to get more information about an alleged murder in rural Alabama. Instead, he met a most compelling character who, after hours of interviews, left him in an unusual position. So I was talking to him, I'm going to come down after July 4th, John. It was beginning of June, you know, first couple weeks of June, that I was having these conversations with him. Um, and then on June 22nd, he killed himself. Um, and so I ha- there wasn't like... Did you see that coming? No. I mean, it was like, it was a little bit like the boy who cried wolf with him. And on, this, and on the show, you sound crushed. Yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, he talked, he said he was going to kill himself. Like, he said, I'm going to do it. And you didn't believe Many it. times. And I knew he said it to other people. And it was still utterly shocking. Right. Where were you when you heard that he died? I was in our studio at mm-hmm. This American Life, mm-hmm. recording it, which I did not expect. How'd you feel? I felt shocked. I felt in disbelief, but then kind of, of course. Um, did you feel angry? I didn't feel angry yet. Um, you know, other people. Eventually you did? No, he didn't, you know didn't me. He, did, he didn't owe me anything. Here you'd given him the attention that he craved on a level he could never have gotten it. You know what I mean? Not, yeah, not, not that, that, but that's my job. I get paid to do that. Right, no, I'm, I'm yeah, not saying you're doing him any know. favors. I'm just saying yeah. I find it interesting that he did that, even in spite of the fact that, you know, had he lived, he could have been like Lance Loud, like this cult figure, you know what I mean, in, I don't in the think culture. He, I, you know, he didn't want that. No, no I'm not, I don't know how he felt about it. I mean, I don't know how he felt about that. I Becoming just think famous. I was not the biggest part of his life. Like, you know, that was, I was something that was going on in his life. You really felt you were not the biggest part of his life? I'm definitely not the biggest part of it. No, we would talk occasionally, and I went to visit him for the better part but the, of a but week. But he died before the podcast came out. I know. I'm just saying, like— I'm saying once yeah. the podcast came out, don't you think he would have been thrilled by the, by the attention he got? Yeah, I think he would have really liked it. I think he could have—though I don't totally know, because he, unpredi- he was such an unpredictable exactly. person that— he could have any number of reactions. I wouldn't deign to like get inside of his head about it. You know, no, I, I, yeah. I appreciate that, which is yeah. very, which is because I think he could also be annoyed by like the think piece reactions and the, you know, I think he would be upset that I didn't have more climate change stuff in the story. Like, I think he would have criticisms and too. We're gonna leap back uh, a bit. Where are you from? I'm from Shelton, Connecticut. And when you it's like an hour and a half from New York. And when you were growing up, was radio and communications that kind of thing the goal you were no i never listened to radio ever 
My parents didn't know what NPR was. Like, we're not that kind of house. What'd you do? I feel do? like there are a lot of people who go work at NPR and public radio who have this whole, like, I grew up in an NPR household. I did not have any clue. No. What'd your yeah. dad do? My dad was a house painter. What'd your mom? She had different jobs growing up. She always wanted to be a teacher, but never became one fully. So now, these days, she teaches adult ed in different How programs. How many siblings do you have? A younger brother. You, what's he doing? He's in sales, door-to-door salesman. He's a door-to-door salesman. Your dad, mm-hmm. your dad was, a, was a professional painting contractor. Mm-hmm. And how do you get into this radio game? <laughs> Where'd you go to college? I went to Yale. What'd you study at Yale? Theater and history. And you wanted to be... I don't know. I think I went in. I did like, you know, high school musicals and stuff. You like, an actor. In, in high school, going into college, I wanted to be... I, I would like acting, but then I very soon realized there were people far better at it than me. So I did some performances... In college, but I got a little more into directing. Um, so I directed a few shows, and that was a little more of my focus in the major. And then what happened? And, um, and writing and stuff. Started to fancy myself a writer. I did some journalism. Some friends and I took a road trip uh, one summer and, like, brought a camcorder and, like, finagled some grants and bought an old van and, and interviewed people about what makes them happy, you know, and, like, tried to write a book about it. I was just looking for kind of jobs that were journalists the, you know, kind of like writing. So that was your initial direction was writing and journalism? I, yeah, writing. I fancy myself a writer, I guess. Your first worked, paycheck comes from who? I worked from a, for um, an alternative weekly company for very briefly for a few months in Washington, D.C., but got this fellowship at NPR called the Croc Fellowship, which was funded by the, Joan. Joan Croc, um, which gave me my career. Like I, I hadn't listened to radio, but I went and did it. It's a year-long fellowship for people who are shortly out of any kind of school. You could do four different jobs in the organization, including reporting and producing, and it's really trial by fire. And at the end of it, I was like, wow, radio is really hard, but I really like it, and I think I'm getting better at did it. Did you fall in love with it? I wasn't like love at first sight right. like that, but I was like, I'm engaged by this. This is, you know, there seems to be opportunities here. And then shortly after that, I moved to New York and got the internship, what was then the internship and is now the fellowship at This American Life. Um, what was that like when you got there? Because Irish Show was such a monolith, you know, it's like it's a great program. And Yeah. Again, I was still kind of new to it. I'd started listening to it in the last year or two just because I'd only gotten into radio. I didn't listen to it growing up and stuff. I think I was aware of it. I'd heard some episodes, but... Um, very soon after getting there, Ira put me on a very big project. He was producing an, an NPR reporter named Frank Langfitt on a hour-long story yeah. about um, a car plant called Numi in yeah, California. No, love, oh, one of my favorites. And I listened well, to so it that over was, and that over was, again. Really? Oh god, that's one of my favorites. I love that. Well, that was the first thing that, I produced that there. One, <laughs> that one, the one about bung. Oh my god! I'm the one who did the taste test who got it wrong no, at the end. Yeah. No. So in actuality, Seth is eating calamari. The chewing you hear from Brian's mic. That is the sound of a calamari lover eating fried pig rectum. I should also add, there were actually two varieties of bung on the plate that day. One bung that my sister had blanched over and over to mellow any organy fecal flavor, and then untreated, straight-up bung. That one, the latter one, bung at its purest, at the height of its bunginess. This is what Brian was eating. I can't eat calamari like to this day. I can't, I can't eat calamari to this day. You're a legend among my friends. You know, that's a very similar, the way that the calamari story came about is very similar to uh, the way S-Town came about. It was a tip line kind of email where someone was like, I was in a pork, I believe it was someone saying like, I was in a pork processing plant and I saw boxes labeled with like imitation calamari. And that was how that's, and they emailed us about it. And that was got, what got us hooked on that story I, I, too. I, 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 yeah. don't, I don't eat calamari anymore. And <laughs> even if I did, I would be like so uh, uh, terrified because of that. I loved it. So when you, when you do segments for that show, when you produce mm-hmm. uh, uh, reports for that show, 
you get to a point with some of them where it, it becomes aborted. You sit there and go, well, this isn't really holding together in terms of you find that somebody's with lying. Ma- with or, many of them. Yeah. With many, you, you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a condition when you work there. Some of it just crashes and, oh, um, and it's um, blows considered, up on the launch yeah, pad. It's, and it's, I mean, it's built into our – like Ira very wisely, I believe, from the beginning of the show when they had like no money, uh-huh. still built into their budget to be able to kill a third of the stories that we start. And it's now – it's probably around there. And that can mean one interview. It can mean a pre-interview. But it can also mean – you know, I've gone on ent- entire trips to four different – States come back and like. Can you give us an example? Like of a killed story? I give mean, give me an example yeah. of a story that you're really keen on. You think you grew onto something and then it dies, and how do hmm. you feel about that? Yeah. I love killing stories. Because I, I, no, I'm serious. But that's part of the culture. It's not, it's built into yeah. our budget, but it's also, I think, ideally, like, not part everyone who I work with, like, agrees with this, but I believe, like, it was instilled in me by. Ira and Julie Snyder and the people who run This American Life that it's a triumph to kill a mediocre story. Uh-huh. Like, and it is so much hard. Like, when you've been through this enough, like, something that's not working so well that you get in so deep that you're trying to bring across the finish line to make it good enough to be on the air so give us is an so example. much harder right. than something that's got all, got all the goods and it's going to be great. You know what I mean? This is fascinating. Yeah, so give us so, an example. I don't know, but it could be a million things. So, like, I, I went on one story that I was excited about. It was a Scottish reporter who was going to look back at a single, like, photograph of a shooting that had happened in Iraq 10 years on that he'd been there for embedded with a with a battalion or something. I can't remember all the details. And we went to three different states, four different states. We were like in a week to interview different players back from that time. But there was this one interview we really wanted to get um, that was going to make it come together. Uh, I think he was a chaplain in the unit. And we were, so we flew to Colorado. He was like the key interview who like had kind of like helped everyone deal with their grief. And we got to the airport and he can't, he was like, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't want to do the interview. And we're in the Denver airport, like calling and begging. And we came all the way out here. We like, the dude dude had flown here from Scotland. Um, He did not meet with us. Um, We went home. Was he lying? No, I think he was just like, it was dredging up. It was a traumatic thing. He just backed out. He just, I don't know why exactly. So we flew home and I was like, maybe I can salvage this. Maybe there's some way to do it. And I, pulled some tape and ultimately it was just like you're going to be happier if you kill this now like right. it's not you're going to be working so hard to make up for what's how missing. many people does he have working over there now um we've Full-time grown a lot in the last couple of years yeah. but like not many like 15 to 20 yeah. 15 like are less producers and then there's you know other staff you know doing operations and tech and stuff like that administration do you feel that there's a um uh, uh philosophically and uh Politically, there's a DNA to the kind of stories they do over there. Oh yeah, absolutely. How would you describe that? Not politically, but but in terms of philosophy, like we're trying to amuse ourselves. Right. That's the philosophy, and amuse. I use the term. You know, that's that's Iris' statement, but I believe in that. You know, um, thesis like um, amuse can be broad. Like it can be into. You know, you could learn something. You could be engrossed in a character that's right. going through something it's terrible. It's a handy term. Yeah, but we're doing it for ourselves. Like, we're, we're trying to do things that we would want to listen to. Right, and, you're, um, and, you're, and your listeners will follow. Yeah, and uh, so that's, like, one overarching principle. But then there's actually just specific ingredients we're looking for in stories, like, that stories have to have, for the most part, to work on our show. And that's a good, you know, a character, a main character who's a good talker who goes through something, like, with plot um, surprise that leads to an interesting idea about the world. Those are the ingredients we're looking for. But do you feel like with your success of your podcast, do you want to kind of go off now and do your own thing? Or do you like where you are as a good hub? That's a good mothership for you. Oh, I get to work with the best podcast oh, yeah. creators in the world. Yeah. Like, That's a good I'm show. so, 
Yeah, I, there's, yeah, I'm very happy. Yeah. And, and, I, and Glass yeah. is such a blindingly bright guy. He's incredible. He's great. No, we, He's you know, I, you know, I've learned m- m- like a lot of what I know from him. And uh, but it's a place that because of him, we get to make things like S Town. There is a spirit of invention there. Like we're constantly trying to fend off boredom and try things that are new. Mm-hmm. And like I don't think there's many other places where I could say like, let me leave my like job for a year to make this thing that you're going to help fund. You know, that is S Town. Like I, it's, I imagine pitching that a lot of places. Have you that read story. criticisms of the show? Of S Town? Yeah, yeah, I've read some stuff. Some, and what were, were, were some of the things that were said, positive and negative, that resonated with you? I mean, the really nice, you know, there's a lot, like, there's some really nice stuff that's been said that it's just a lot this of incredible yeah. example of empathy, which I couldn't have, I did not even occur to me that it was like more empathetic than other things. Like, it just felt like. Me making the thing that it's like I want to make. It's like a novel. I've heard a lot of that, and that was super cool. In that way that you're storytelling. I mean, here you wanted to direct yeah. and do plays, and you wanted to act. And what were some of the negative things that hit you? It's been interesting. It's I'm still sorting through all this. You know, it's only been a few weeks, but I believe people have different reactions to it that kind of betray like their background a bit. Um, so there's a certain reaction I've heard from mostly like white Northerners, <laughs> um, where like the podcast makes them uncomfortable. They'll use that word, like uncomfortable. In what regard? I don't quite know what they mean. Like in a couple cases, you know, it's been a reaction to this, this one this one scene in the second chapter where I, w- I, w- I was inside of this uh, tattoo parlor, right. Black Sheep Inc., and some very terrible racist so comments are made. a tough crowd there. Um, and so there's, this, there's a certain reaction I've gotten from mostly like people in the North, white people, like Black people are like, yeah, duh. <laughs> but, right, um, right. And did, but, did, did you have the same reaction yourself when you were there? Do you find that even for you when you went down there, you thought, my God, this is the same country I live in? Um, there was none of that? I didn't have that feeling. But I was. But that's the thing. Like, I'm, Wherever I'm reporting, I'm trying to find things that are surprising. That's what I'm doing when I'm reporting. But they don't ever affect you? No, it affects me. That's the whole point. You know, but it wasn't because it's like the South. The racism, It didn't. what surprised me about it was how open people sometimes were not everybody but that there were moments where people would be open on mic that surprised me i certainly was not surprised that that racism exists and that you know people would say things even to a stranger you know that didn't surprise me and so anyway so the reaction what did did surprise you um in general yeah when you were down there what Um, surprised you you say I do this to be amused. Yeah. What amused you? I mean, every, the I mean like, they're just mo- like the only reason to do this story is because I like it. Like I realized in the middle of writing it, like there's no news peg for this. There's no like business imperative like to do this. Like I like this story, and so it was actually like a joy to write, even when I was like staying up all night on deadline. And the reason I like it is just a, a million different moments. Like you know, I, I you know, there's a moment where one of the characters talks about wanting to like cut like someone's nipples off. I've just never heard someone say that on tape before. To get the jewelry. You know, to get someone's gold nipple rings. I've never heard that on tape before. That amused me. Cut them off, she says. (laughs) That amused me. Like, um, there's, you know, moments where John goes on a 45-second rant talking about, like, Putin should bomb us all and we're just living in some crazy country. You know, like, that's just a rant I can't even replicate because I've just, you know, totally extemporaneous. There's a moment where... um, you know, an old love interest of John's at the end of chapter six lays out, you know, just exactly what he wanted to do to him one day that he never actually did. Like he wanted to make a move and he wanted to kiss him on his belly. I've never heard anyone do that on the radio before. That was was some wonderful Um, stuff on those pieces. And so it was just like those moments 
they surprised me and they were the reason to do the story to me. So you when, you, when you talk about writing and when you're stitching the whole thing together and doing the tracking of where you're going to bring it all together, you've got to write all that down for you and you've you got to write it's this heavily piece. edited and, write, and written. You're doing all the writing? Yes, you I'm doing the all the writing. And who's yeah. doing the editing? Do you have a good editor? Well, editing means something I think maybe different to me in radio than it would to you in, um, in film Who's shaping or the story? So... So basically, I work with Julie Snyder, who's right. who is the co-creator of Serial and um, was the senior producer of This American Life for years until she created Serial. Now I have her job, um, but we right. made it this together. And you know, she so she she was working at This American Life as senior producer when John first contacted me. So she was my editor as I was going down to Alabama in the early days, and then we kind of stayed on it together and saw came up with a vision for this together. So she's the person I would be checking in with on my reporting trips because there's a million decisions you're you're editing even as you're reporting in deciding what. What leads to follow, what to spend your time on, who to talk to, next, what to next, talk to them next, about. Yeah. So she was constantly in the process with me, and it's so important to have a good editor. I mean, she's, she uh. is the secret to what makes things so good. So, so then finally, after like, you know, a year of reporting or more, we had like a month where we sat down. Or first we had a month where we went through all the tape and kind of made summaries of every interview. Then she and I just sat there and we we're like, okay, so how does the story start? And it was like a good month of just like, you know, what I imagine it's like to be in a TV writer's room of just, you know, talking through the story and kind of jamming, you know, kind of like, well, what if it went this way? You know, so you get an email, then you write him back. No, you don't need the writing back part. Go straight to the phone call. Like, or no, this part we want to save for later. And just like trying it with each other, you know, she'd say, well, what if it went this and this and this? And I'd be like, no, that part's boring. Let's cut that part. Or that's too much explanation. And And we would just go through it, write it on a whiteboard, and then move on to the next chapter. Eventually, we got to a point where we couldn't see it all, and we were feeling overwhelmed in our heads. And so we started again from the beginning with note cards on a wall mm. that stretched all around the big, corner. I'm a big fan of note cards on yeah. the wall. Yeah. And it was just that. So then we came Lauren up. Michaels taught me that. Really? Yeah. Is that how do sketches oh, and oh, stuff? Oh, yeah, we, how he pieces the show together, it's all note cards on a big, really? yeah. a giant uh, It was the first board. time I've done that. I'm like, I, I can't you imagine like, to put that thing together six hours. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the time and the effort involved. What are you working on now? Um, I'm back in my day job. I'm the senior. You got some ideas of what you want to do. I'm helping other people with their stories, so I do a lot of editing. So, like, I'm talking. You know, working on a show next week. Um, that's a political show, so I'm editing a story about that. I'm editing a story about a Somali pirate right now, but it's someone else's story. But so they're reading it to me, and I'm telling them structural changes and different changes to make, and we're going through that process, which I'm grateful for. I don't have a story in mind that I love as much as S Town, and so I can kind of wait for it to come to me. You know, while I help other people with their stuff. Hello, Brian it's Alec. Hi, Alec. Hey, Brian. I realized after we spoke that I did have one more question for you. And uh, all right, I'm very curious what that is. Burning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's a pretty obvious one, which is, do you see any of yourself in John? Um. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I really respect like people who forge their own way in the world. And I don't know, certainly like a way of being in the world that I aspire to, that I don't know if I always accomplish. And that's what I enjoyed about talking to him and being with him. He was so unabashedly himself. When I'm able to do that in my own life, I feel good about it. <laughs> you know, I admire that in John a lot. And it seems like he was somebody who insisted that he could be himself regardless of who he was with. Do you agree? Absolutely, yeah. I think he was aware that he had a very polarizing effect on people, and he, he was aware of that, that his, his personality could overwhelm people or turn people off, or people really just loved being with him. Um, and he kind of had a sense of that. You're like, this is me, and take it or leave it. You, you, you make know? people uncomfortable. 
<laughs> you could, yeah. Or you bring yeah. people along for like a very special ride, and the right type of person is willing to go there with you. But one more thing that occurred to me was, if he were around, what was one question you still wanted to ask him? Um, something I wish I did with John that I never did is to like push back on some of his racial views that he expressed sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes it would come up in the course of some other discussion about something else. And I would kind of note, like, I want to talk to him about that at some point, like why he seems to be so enlightened in some ways and then so kind of backwards and like thoughtless in others. And I just never got the chance to do that. Do, do, do you attribute those views of his just to certain kind of stereotypical regionalisms or did, do you think he really was a racist? I mean, I think he certainly, I don't know, his, like his professor said when he got to college as a really young guy, like he, you know, he, he bore kind of the markings of someone who'd grown up in that part of the world at that time in terms of the way he talked about, about race and the words he used. I get the sense from talking to people who knew him that he got better over the years as he read more and engaged with the world more. I mean, I don't know. I don't, you don't know what's in someone's heart. Like he was both things at once. Like he, you know, sympathized with, and felt for people who were affected by racism, and he understood that racism can be systemic, but then he would be thoughtless and, you know, use really, really shitty words and, um, you know, kind of retreat back into a cruder way of talking. And it was one of those things where it would, would have been like a whole thing to talk about that I wanted to talk about with him and always meant to, and he died before I could. I, you know, I wish I had. I wish I could have kind of pushed back on some of the stuff he would say, you know, because he knew better. Right. That's that's kind of what I wanted to talk to him about. It's like, why, why do you sometimes still kind of retreat into this way of talking when I know you know better, you know? Well, thank you so much. And, and listen, seriously, I, I, I so look forward to discovering what's the next thing you're going to do. I'm really looking forward to seeing you uh, do another show. It would be great. I appreciate it. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. 
For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.